So Father God, I just thank you, Lord, that you're with us. I thank you that you're, you're in our midst, Lord God. And, and I thank you that you provide the bread. And I, I just pray that you'd help me to deliver it how you want me to, Father. And Lord, I just pray that your word will be received and not stolen. Um, and that, Lord God, your name would be honoured. In Jesus' name, amen. So I'm concluding the series, The Storyteller. Um, and this is the last one of that. Um, it's been really good going through all the, the parables of Jesus. And um, I've really enjoyed them and unpacking them and things. And if you've, if you've not heard them all, just you know, have a look on the, the podcast. If you just go on the Hope Church webpage and just type in podcast, it's there. You know, they're all there have a listen and it's really easy to get on there i've been um listening to them when i was in covid prison a couple of weeks ago um and do you know what if i hadn't have felt quite ill it's like a human game of monopoly isn't it you know it's like take the card chance um you have covid do not pass go do not collect 200 pounds stay at home you know not miss a turn type of thing and, and then everyone else is carrying on with life and you're just like not allowed anywhere outside your boundaries. But yeah, listen to the po- podcast, it's really helpful. <laughs> anyway, so, so last time I, I spoke on the parable of the sower and I don't know whether I mentioned, but I used to teach that when I was an RE teacher at school. And another one that I used to teach on was um, the parable of the sheep and the goats. And, uh, and that's actually a required part of the RE GCSE. And uh, it's, it's a great answer to a lot of questions, you know, that, that you might get. So we always had to make sure that the, that the teenagers, that they knew it, the parable of the sheep and the goats. So um, we're going to read it through first, and then we're going to break it down a bit. So if you're following along, please turn to Matthew 25 verse 31 to 46, and it's headed the final judgment. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the internal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick, and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? 
Then he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So on first glance, it looks like a really harsh, hard warning, doesn't it? You know, and there's a, a lot of, of stuff that the, this parable says about the judgment and that it's, it's easy to just focus solely on judgment day and what's going to happen and, you know, heaven and hell and go in there if you don't do this and you do this and you get, you get to heaven, all that kind of thing. And actually, before I become, come on to the main points of it, um, one of the major takeaways from this parable that's always stood out for me is, is, is what Jesus actually tells us about hell. And, you know, so number one, hell is not Satan's home. It's not his playground. It's not his lair. It's not where he lives. It's not, you know, it's not like where we say heaven is God's home and earth is his footstool. It's not like the opposite. It's not like that. It's definitely not a place where all the forbidden stuff happens. Um, it's an actual prison, and it's been prepared for the devil and his followers by God. It's a place of eternal punishment. It says that in verse 46. So it's not an easy place. It's not an exciting place, and it definitely exists. Okay? And number two, hell was never created for human beings. And that's a real comfort to know that, I think. It's always a comfort to me. It was not created for humans. It was not created for any one of us. It was not created for anyone out there. It wasn't created for human beings. It was created for the devil and his followers and his angels, it says. There's no mention of it being a place for people. But because of the fall, that's like a default happening. You know, it happens that way. There's two places for humans to go now. Eternal punishment or eternal life. But it really was not created for mankind. And that's always stood out for me. And I always, always want to say that, you know, because some people think, well, why has he created hell and for people if he loves us? Well, it wasn't for us. And that's that. You know, that was it. So, yeah. Anyway, for a bit of context for this parable, I know John's talked a lot about context in, in these parables, so I thought I'll, I'll get in there as well. Um, he delivered this parable just two days before he was handed over and arrested. And he knew exactly what was coming. He knew exactly what was laid out before him. And that final few days beforehand had been a time where Jesus had come into Jerusalem and had done a lot of things. And he visited some key places. He'd come into Jerusalem on the donkey to shouts of Hosanna. And he'd been to the temple and turned over the money changers' tables. And then he went and taught on the Mount of Olives. And, and that was mostly about the end times and what would happen when he returned. And now I, I love to, to look at all around the passages that I'm focused on. So it, was, it, it suddenly stood out, and I've never seen it before, that there's a parallel. There's a parallel between the beginning of his ministry and the end of his ministry. And, um, you know, I like to call it like the dawn of his ministry and the dusk of his ministry, the Sermon on the Mount. He, he came up, he went on the mount, it wasn't the same mountain, it wasn't, wasn't Mount of Olives, but um, 
yeah, he was there. He, he taught an extended sermon. And um, he gave the Beatitudes, you know, blessed are those who mourn and all that. And in the last one, where he went on, a, on the Mount of Olives, he gave um, the woes. And woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, for you doing this and your whitewashed tombs and all that, you know. And he, he pronounced that onto the scribes and Pharisees for being uh, hypocrites. And each one of them, the Beatitudes and the woes, directly correspond to one another. It's really fascinating to find that. So, you know, yeah, like the fourth Beatitude is about the righteous and the fourth woe is about unrighteousness. It's quite interesting. So, yeah, it's, uh, it shows how Jesus perfectly bookends his ministry time. And, uh, you know, it, 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 the Bible's amazing, isn't it? It's absolutely amazing. In the Sermon on the Mount, he spoke of the commandments and how it's about the heart and not the law. On the Mount of Olives, he dealt with end times. In fact, the disciples had asked him privately what to expect. And he, even though he spoke to them about Judgment Day, he made sure they were clear what exactly it was they should be focused on. Because it's really easy to be distracted, even by biblical things, off the main thing, isn't it? And I've done it so many times, and I've seen it you know, happen in other people. And even in our faith, we get distracted by different, different doctrines, beliefs, arguments, different denominations even. I mean, I remember going down that rabbit hole of eschatology, end-time teaching, and, you know, quite a few years ago, and it removed my focus from the main thing. And there's so many different opinions on it. But what's the main thing? Jesus. And there's nothing wrong with studying about end times, but you need to know what you, you know, you need to know your Bible before you do that. You know, it shouldn't become an obsession to look for end time stuff. We seek Jesus. And if you've ever started on that path, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. It's easy to fall into a trap. You know, and another, another time, um, oh, the whole church seemed to fall into this one. Uh, it was like a, a, a angels and demons um, obsession. Um, the whole thing about the Jezebel spirit was, you know, there was a book out and everybody read it. And, you know, it did, I think it, you know, there was nothing wrong with the book it, itself, but the whole focus and obsession on it did a lot of harm you know can you imagine people were really paranoid looking for the Jezebel spirit everywhere no let's look for Jesus he's the author and finisher of our faith you know he'll warn us if there's a problem because the enemy prowls around seeking who he may devour we don't need to give any more attention to him at all so when we focus on Jesus and submit to him you know, he is our saviour, isn't he? You know, by the devils, I don't care what their name is, they have to flee. It says submit. James 4, 7 says, submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee. It's simple. We don't need to go looking for it in people or in places. So the more, more we focus on them, the more messed up we'll get. 
because our true focus is not on our saviour. Anyway, my whole point is not to get distracted, and there's a bit of a distraction, but there we go. And, but the disciples, they were distracted. They took him aside to ask him to explain about the end times. And it completely missed the point of his earlier teachings, which was really about focusing on him. Um, Jesus warned them not to be led astray by false teachers. He told them the signs of the end, that the signs of the end was coming, yes. And we are seeing them, you know, we are seeing some now, lots of them. But he spoke three parables, one after another. The first one, the wise and foolish virgins, the parable of the talents, and they came before the parable of the sheep and the goats. And the first two, um, the wise and foolish virgins and the talents, they, they tell us to be ready. They tell us to focus on God. They tell us to fulfill our calling and not miss Jesus. But our faith is a journey. And then when we arrive at the parable of the sheep and the goats, we're, we're at like judgment day here. And Jesus says, speaking of himself, the son of man, you know, he's returned and he's on the throne in all his glory. And the angels are with him. And it's at this point we're not sure. It sort of switches between parable and prophecy. It's a very different type of parable is the sheep and the goats. There's a, a, a deep prophetic element in it because some of it, you know, it's actually going to happen in a way. It's an obvious prophetic picture of what's going to happen on the last day and it, it does seem to switch between parable and prophecy. So the people are already there, gathered before him and this is after the final trumpet, the tribulation, the rapture, whatever it is that you've read about, all, that, all those things that people, theologians, quarrel about. At that point, it's not going to matter because we're all stood there in front of Jesus. And the first thing that happens, Jesus himself separates the people. He separates them into two categories. Like a shepherd separates the sheep and the goats. Two different species and they've been coexisting before that day. Now, when we give our lives to Jesus, we become a new creation. He calls us to come out and be separate. Something makes us different to others. And I don't mean better or superior. That is not what I mean at all. We're forgiven. We know the grace of God. We've become followers of Christ. Our shepherd is Jesus. And instead of stubbornly headbutting our way throughout life without him, it's his grace that separates us, his Holy Spirit that's in us. That's what separates us. That's the seal on our hearts. He puts the sheep on his right and the goats to his left. Now, I'm left-handed, right? And honestly, I don't know why it bothers me. The left thing has always bothered me. And I know, honestly, that if I was like born 400 years ago, I'd have probably been burnt at the stake as a witch because I've got gypsy ancestry and I'm left-handed and that's it, there you go. You're not, you're not around anymore, that's it. But seriously, it's really always bothered me, this left thing, what is the problem with the left? You know, I felt like, oh gosh, it's like saying that one is good and one is evil. 
Even in cartoons, they have like, you know, devils on the left shoulder and angels on the right shoulder. And actually, as a, when I went into, you know, being an RE teacher, I found that that's actually Islamic thinking, you know. It's an Islamic teaching, that, the shoulder thing. But the thing about the right and left, it's everywhere in the Bible. And so I had a little Google at the significance of right and left within Judaism and Hebrew thought. And it turns out that right represents the spiritual and left represents the physical. So it's not a morality issue. It's not like good versus bad or right versus wrong. We're not going to be burnt at the stake for being witches if, you know, we've got left-handed. There's just two realms, right, spiritual, left, physical. It's a standard element in Jewish thinking for centuries and it makes you think of some verses in a really different light. For example, Ecclesiastes 10 verse 2, I've not, I've not given these so they won't come up. The heart of the wise inclines to the right, but the heart of a fool inclines to the left. And what he's saying here is that the wise man concerns himself with spiritual things, whereas a fool centers his heart on physical temporal things. Matthew 6, verse 3, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, When you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. In other words, don't let your flesh get in the way of what you're trying to accomplish spiritually. And at the ordination of a Levitical priest, the blood from the ram is dabbled on the man's right earlobe, right thumb, and right big toe. And this spiritualizes his, uh, yeah, this symbolizes his spiritual anointing. So yeah, it's brilliant, isn't it? I'm really glad I found that out. And you know what? Left-handed people are seen as creatives, aren't they? And it's, that's quite physical, isn't it? And, that, and so it's like even scientifically proven that it's to do with the, the physical, the left side. So it's, it explains a lot. But coming into this parable, it affects the rest of it. Because if we're Christians, resurrected in our spirit at the cross, the sheep on the right represent the spiritual followers of Christ, those that are in the spirit, those who have the spirit, those whose spirits are alive because of salvation through Jesus. And the left represents those who are not alive in Christ. They live in the flesh, concerned primarily with their sensual and self. They might profess to have a faith even. They might talk the talk, but their actions tell a different story. So it's not really about what you do, it's about who you belong to, isn't it? So the next thing that happens is that Jesus blesses those on his right. Verse 34 says, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And we know exactly what they reply. I don't need to say it again. They're really confused. And they say, well, why? Why do you say this? When did we do that for you? They ask Jesus, when? When did we do this? Because they've not been to Jesus with clothing or water or whatever. But Jesus is explaining that when you show love to others, you're actually showing love to him. 
And the Bible is clear that we're saved through grace. It's not through our works, but an outworking of the love of God in us is works. The salvation is not dependent on works, but the love that comes first into our hearts. The love of God comes first into our hearts and then it goes to work. Jesus gave us a new commandment to love one another in John 13, 34 to 35. This is in the Passion Translation. So I give you a new commandment, love each other just as much as I have loved you. For when you demonstrate the same love I have for you by loving one another, everyone will know that you're my true followers. And if you think about it, Jesus has moved on a little bit from the the Sermon on the Mount, the love others as you love yourself, the golden rule, to love others as I have loved you. And he could only say it then, three years later, because they were just getting to know him at the beginning, weren't they, in that first one? After spending so much time with him, just before the crucifixion, when it would really come um, to, to, you know, to light how much he loves people, they now knew how he loved them. They'd experienced it. We know how he loves us. It's the new standard, isn't it? Not just love others as you love yourself, but love others as I have loved you. It's a new standard. And James also explains it in um, chapter 2, verse 14 to 17 in the Living Bible. Dear brothers, what's the use of saying that you have faith and are Christians if you aren't proving it by helping others? Will that kind of faith save anyone? And, you know, I had to stop there because I thought, well, we're not saved by works. But it's not talking about us. It's talking about others. They're saved when they see how your acts of kindness, you see. If you have a friend who is in need of food and clothing and you say to him, well, goodbye, God bless, stay warm, eat hearty, and then don't give him clothes or food, what good does that do? So you see, it isn't enough just to have faith. You must also do good to prove that you have it. Faith doesn't show itself by good works. Faith that doesn't show itself by good works is no faith at all. It's dead and useless. And this really makes sense to me, you know, we might be saved, praying for people, believing, spirit-filled Christians, but we won't see salvations in others, in those we meet, if our actions don't back up our words. You know, we'd just be hypocrites, wouldn't we? Jesus didn't just teach the multitude, he fed them, he healed them. You know, his actions proved that he loved them. He taught them. And if you read Acts, the disciples, they had a whole feeding program, didn't they? And a clothing program going on, as well as all the preaching and teaching and church building and and church planting. So, yeah, when you give to those, yeah, when you give to those out out of the heart of love for Jesus, that's when you see change. And then you've got those on the left, those goats. Their actions gave them away. In fact, they were all talk and no action, weren't they? In using sheep and goats in his parable, Jesus explains the difference between the two really clearly to the people that he was talking to. And he used sheep so many times, didn't he, to teach us that we should follow him. 
because he's our shepherd and he loves us and he keeps us safe. But goats, on the other hand, they're, they're used throughout scripture to show stubbornness and single-mindedness. And they also are used to show like leadership as well. And did you know that it's a known fact that if you put a goat in with a flock of sheep, it would assume command and many of the sheep would be led away by it. That's a real picture, isn't it? In fact, some shepherds used to use it for their advantage and have a goat and they called it the Judas goat, by the way, which is quite interesting. And they would place the goat in the herd when it was time for some to be slaughtered and they would lead several sheep away to be slaughtered. Very interesting. So there's nothing wrong with actual goats. You know, we're not against goats. But just used here because the people knew exactly what what Jesus was talking about, you see. Goats are not very good followers and they can, in fact, be a danger to the sheep. So, And the sheep are different because they've got to know the shepherd and they know his voice and the ones that know his voice the best are not going to be led astray by some goat are they really they're uh, they you know but the sheep they were surprised when Jesus praised them because doing the right thing just came naturally to them and a man called John W. Rittenbau I think that's how I say his name says this Because they developed their relationship with Christ through prayer, Bible study, fasting, and obedience, the sheep have love through a regular infusion of the Spirit of God. The love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who is given to us. It says in Romans 5.5. A godly life always comes down to the basic things. The sheep are simply, unconsciously, and unaffectedly good, kind, sympathetic, and concerned. Attributes of character that cannot be feigned. So yeah, we can't fake it. If you love Jesus and you're working on your relationship with Jesus, the other things come naturally. It's not, it's not that we do good things to get into heaven. That's not what that was saying at all it's work on your relationship with God that remember that those two parables beforehand were about be ready know God seek seek the bridegroom that kind of thing and then all the rest of it comes naturally so we can measure our love for Jesus by how we treat other people and in fact the way we love can and will bring others to faith so let's pray Thank you, Lord, that we we belong to you. Help us to see needs and meet them where we can, whether it's through an act of kindness or a whole feeding program. Help us not to be distracted by everything else in the way, but show us how to love like you have loved us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.